Welcome to the Learner-Centered Spaces podcast, where we empower and inspire ownership of learning. Sponsored by Mastery Portfolio. Hosted by Star Saxstein and Crystal Frommer. In each episode, we will bring you engaging conversations with a wide variety of educators, both in and out of the classroom. This podcast is created for educators who want to learn more about how to make the shift toward learner-centered spaces for their students, schools, and districts, or education at large. The Learner-Centered Spaces podcast is now a member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Good morning and Happy New Year. By the time you will be listening to this, we will have already been into the new year a week. And we have something a little special today. I'm sure you're noticing that it's not Crystal introducing this show, but it's me, Star. We're going to be talking to Crystal about her book, When Calling Parents Isn't Your Calling. And I know as a former classroom teacher that calling parents was never my favorite thing to do, even if it was for a positive one. I'm not really a phone person. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with Crystal because I know that she's going to share some awesome tips with all of our listeners about how we could create better parent-teacher partnerships in our schools. So Crystal, can you give us a little synopsis about what your book covers? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about it. The book became uh, a reality because of an Edutopia article that I wrote in 2020. It was my very first Edutopia article, and I wrote an article about parent partnerships because it was something that I, as a teacher, struggled with very much when I was new to the field and have gotten a lot better. I'm not going to say that I'm an expert and I do this perfectly because I certainly don't, but it's an area that I have grown so much. And because I've had that opportunity to grow, I've learned a lot. And I've learned a lot from administrators. I've learned a lot from other educators. I've learned a lot from my mistakes. I've learned from my friends and colleagues' mistakes. So I think that it's a it's a topic that no one really wants to talk about, but it's extremely important to discuss why are we communicating. And, and when I say parent, I want to make sure that everyone knows that um, I want to be inclusive here and that I include parents as guardians, caregivers, family members. Um, so I mentioned that in the book as well. So it's not necessarily meaning you know, a mom or a dad, but it's really the person who is the caregiver for that child. And that connection between the educator and that caregiver is extremely important for that child's success in school. So in that vein, since you already started talking about it, why is there such an important need um, for a book on parent-teacher partnerships? So I guess the Edutopia article was not enough. (laughs) So um, actually, when I wrote it, I realized I have so much more to say about this. There are so many tips that educators may not know about, whether you've been teaching for five months or you've been teaching for 25 years. There are tips out there that you could learn from, from other teachers. And I've gathered all of those into this book. And why is it important? Because when a child goes home, they actually spend... Um, more time in school, right, than, they're, than they are at home because of sleeping time and, and all of their sports and other hobbies and things that they have going on this day and age. But students may not be talking to their parents about what's happening at school, especially if you have a, a preteen or a teenager, then they're pretty close-lipped about what's happening at school. And that partnership is key because we can communicate, like you said, the good news. We could call home or send an email home. 
with good news. And we can even let the parents know if there's something that we need more support with. And what I do, because I teach middle schoolers, and before I send that email home or call the parent, I believe in the, the triangular partnership between a student and the parent and the educator if they're an older student, right? If we're talking like someone who is age 11 or older. So what I do with my students is, you know, if there's a, a problematic behavior or a habit that I would like for them to improve upon, I will ask them if they need more support from the grownups at home. And I ask them this privately, of course, and the student will always say, no, I don't. I don't need any support at home. I think I got this. I will take care of it. And I give them that chance, right? I give them that chance to improve upon that behavior. And then after that point, if um, the behavior is not improved, then I phrase it with the student again privately. It looks like we're going to need some support from your grownups at home with this. And so they have a heads up that I'm going to contact the family at home. And I try not to, to pose this as a punitive call, but more of a supportive call, although they, they definitely see it as punitive because they're getting, you know, a negative feedback. Um, but that's, that, that illustrates, that conversation I have with a student illustrates that partnership, that when I talk to the family, I say, you know, Star is uh, coming to class late, lately, and um, it's, it's hindering her time that she has to work on the warm-up in my class. Could you have a conversation with Star about this? Because I think that if we're all united on this, it will really help and support her in, in building a better habit. And that's exactly how I build that partnership. I, when, you, when you started answering that question, Crystal, I started laughing a little bit because my son, who's now a freshman in college, when he was in high school and I asked him, how was, you know, how's your day? What did you learn today? Um, it was always nothing. Like, I, I don't know what the heck was going on in school for the eight hours he was there, but according to him, he learned not a single thing. So, <laughs> of course, that's how teenagers are. How was your day? Fine. Fine. Um, so, I mean, we had kind of gotten into the habit when I picked him up from school where I would have him like go through each period with me. You know, what do you do? Period one, period two, period three, period four. And he would kind of just walk me through um, the topics of the day's learning, whether or not like I, I tried to shift it. And so parents out there who might be listening or educators just kind of shifting that conversation with your child on the other side. So you get that phone call from an awesome educator like Crystal, and then you have to have the conversation with your with your child like, how do we continue to sort of bridge that gap by not punishing them for the phone call, but also making sure that, you know, we are answering the teacher's request while still being respectful of our child and most importantly, getting our child the support that they need. Um, so, Crystal, before we kind of go deeper into the calling aspect, can you just talk a little bit about how parents can have successful conversations like that with their children. Um, if you have any tips, especially for the older kids who aren't as forthcoming. So I did, I read somewhere and I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly where I read this, but there are different ways to ask your, your child, how was your day? And like you said, you know, you structured it with your son of, 
you know, what did you do in P1? What did you do in period two? What did you do in period three? To give him a structure of how to answer that question because they're coming home with a million things buzzing around in their head. And a teenager, their most, the most important thing to them is a feeling of belonging. And that does not involve necessarily reading Romeo and Juliet and ninth grade English. They are more interested in, does this uh, friend still like me? Am I going to make the football team? And it's all around this, this feeling of belonging. Do I belong to that group? Are they including me in this? And the parent really wants to know is, at least from my point of view, the parent wants to know is, how did you do on that test in algebra today? And that's not on the kid's mind at all. They they are more focused on their social and their friend group dynamics, right? So there are different ways that you can ask the question. Uh, One thing that we've been doing with our daughter since she was very young and started to learn to talk was we would say, what's your favorite thing and your least favorite thing? We would ask that after a vacation or after, you know, something that we did that was unique. And you can ask that at the end of the school day for a you know, a younger kid who's in middle school, because high schoolers will roll your eyes at at you if you ask what was your favorite thing and your least favorite thing. They might say the least favorite thing was this question. But you can ask them all sorts of kinds of things about, um, you could could ask them, what's your favorite book that you've been reading in English this year? Or what's your favorite topic that's come up in history? And you, you could get a little more, more specific with the topics, and then that might give them a little less stress about how do I answer this hugely open-ended question to my parent? But if they're asking me a pointed question about what's my favorite thing about or what's my least favorite thing about, then it gives them something very specific to answer. Um, I, my daughter is an athlete, and to find out more about how practice is going, I'll say, what is your favorite warm-up routine? that you, you do in basketball. And she will go into a little bit more depth because she starts talking and she'll say, well, we do these squats and that's, that's not my favorite thing. Or, you know, we do these drills with shooting baskets. And so at least gets the conversation going and I'm hooking it to something she's already very interested in. So that would be my tip for, for parents is to ask something very specific just to get them talking. I think that's going to be really helpful for folks. Um, so we kind of touched on this a little earlier um, about calling. And I mentioned that, you know, calling parents was definitely never my favorite thing to do. And the title of the book is, you know, when calling parents isn't your calling, do teachers always need to make phone calls to have these successful partnerships? It's a very common question that I get. And I will I will share the answer to that. And I will also share the pushback that I get from my answer as well. So no, you don't always have to make a phone call. However, I think that if there is something that is sensitive or maybe not good news, something that the child needs to improve upon or an area of concern, then a voice conversation is going to go much further than an email. And I've worked with teachers who will write paragraph after paragraph in an email and the tone is lost or the tone is misinterpreted, then you're going to get a reply that's also many paragraphs back. And you're wasting so much time of your day because you have mental energy that you're spending towards, well, I'm so angry at this this parent because they wrote this to me and I'm going to snap back and write these multiple paragraphs back. And so much energy is being wasted with that. And you just keep going back and forth and back and forth. 
And I, I even have an example that I use when I, I give talks to schools. And I have permission from the teacher to share this, but it, I don't share his name. But he was getting so hot about a parent dialogue in an email that he was starting to write in all caps. I'm <laughs> like, whoa, 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 pump, pump the brakes there. We have some emotions that are running high, and this is not going to translate well in, uh, in an email. And it probably wouldn't translate well in a phone call unless you had an administrator who could be there to kind of help guide the conversation. So let's hope it never gets that tense. But even before it gets even slightly tense, this is what I do. I will craft an email to a family, um, and if there's two parents in the family, or maybe even there's a step step parents in the family, multiple parents, I will email all of them because I don't know which parent wants to handle this or respond, so I'll email all of them. And I will say, do you have time today between 2 and 3 p.m. for a phone call that we can discuss STARS progress and algebra? Um, I'm concerned about her most recent quiz performance, something like that. Uh, please let me know what's the best number to call. And I keep it that short. And the reason I include all those pieces, I include the time that I'm available because I don't want to play phone tag. I include every parent in that email because, I, again, like I said, I don't know which parent wants to actually take the call. And I also, because parents and everyone have anxiety about anything that's not good news, right? I want to give some kind of heads up of what are we going to talk about, right? It's not about star throwing a pencil across the room. It's about her most recent quiz performance. So they have some kind of idea of what we're going to discuss. And then I have a phone number that I can call between two and three. That's the time that works for me. And then I have a conversation that, again, is uplifting, not punitive. How can we partner together to help your child with this? And the pushback I get from that, and, and that's worked for me so many times, that, that structure of sending a short email, asking for a time to call, and then making the call, which is usually 10 minutes, doesn't take that much time. But the pushback that I get from that is with the litigious society that we live in, we want written documentation of all of our conversations. So my response to that is, yes, of course, you do want some kind of written conversation, written documentation of what was said in the conversation. So I recommend that you reply all to that email that you um, sent so that all the parents um, are involved in that. And you literally send a bullet point list of what was discussed and what we're going to do going forward so that you have documentation that you could share with the administration if you need to. It's also a nice reminder for all of the parents that this is what was discussed. This is what we're going to do going forward. And maybe even we'll follow up in X amount of weeks or days, something like that. So um, and I even um, here's a little hack that I share as I'm on the phone for that 10 minute conversation discussing their child or listening to what the parents' concerns are on the other end and answering their questions rather than an email going back and forth, is that while I'm on that call, I am quietly typing the bulleted list of a summary of what's being said so they don't hear me typing uh, while I'm on the phone. But I'm typing up and then I can do schedule send. I can, so it doesn't look like I sent it seconds after I hung up the phone. I can schedule send that summary, you know, uh, 20 minutes, two hours, whatever, later um, so that we all have a summary and documentation of what was said. I love that. I think it's far more useful than like the logs I had to keep um, 
which were just like my personal documentation of, you know, the time that I called, how long I was on the phone for, how, you know, which parent I spoke with, which guardian I spoke with, and the nature of said call. Um, but by doing it with a reply all email, I feel like you're really being very transparent and you're creating a much more authentic and useful way of doing it. And I also was very guilty of the note taking while the conversations were going on all the time um, because I, it was just the best way for me to ensure that what was being said was exactly what was being recorded if I couldn't record the voice by itself. But, you know, at the same time too, while all this is going on, we also have like, as teachers, we're expected to do a lot of things. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. So now we have documentation of all of these calls that we're making. Um, something your book talks about is the importance of creating and holding boundaries. So if we are trying to create boundaries that are healthy for everyone involved, how how do we do that in a way that still creates an authentic and meaningful partnership with these parents? Right. And, and being a partner is, it's a professional partnership, right? We are not available at 11 p.m. to answer questions about what's on the test tomorrow. We, um, it, it's up to the teacher, but if you're open to texting or not, that is a boundary that you are allowed to set. And um, giving out your personal cell phone may not be expected, and I hope that's not expected. Um, and then you could keep it to email. Our communication is going to be via email, and it's going to be um, via phone call of the school phone. That's that's one option that that I always choose. I choose to call from the school phone. However, there all there are always exceptions. There are some times, yes, that you do need to make a phone call that is outside of school hours. Um, here's an example. We had a student who we went on an overnight trip, and there's always going to be heightened anxiety when you're taking middle schoolers on an overnight trip. Some of these kids have never been away overnight, and this student had special medical issues where he um, it was very dangerous for him to swim that he was not to be in water, he was not to be canoeing, swimming, anything like that because of a, a medical issue that he had. And because they are middle schoolers, you can't just tell the kid, hey, make sure you don't canoe during this trip, okay? You really have to actually make sure that that's actually happening because they'll get swept up in, oh, but all my friends are canoeing and I thought it'd be okay and I have a life jacket on. So I told this particular parent, because the medical issue was very new to them, I told this particular parent, here's my cell phone number. You can text me anytime during this trip if you want to check in, and I will text you just to let you know that he's doing okay. And that is not something I do for every parent, and that is not something I would probably do again for that particular parent because um, of the special circumstance. So because just because we have boundaries doesn't mean that we're rigid is what I'm, I'm trying to say here. So that was one exception. Our school asked that educators write back within... 24 hours, 24 business hours, right? So if you get a, an email on a Friday afternoon, you are not expected to respond by Monday afternoon because that would be a 24-hour period. And you can actually use that because I have some parents over the years who would write me and I would write them back with the with answer. This is kind of like playing whack-a-mole at the arcade. 
And then they would write me back with another question. I write them back with an answer. They write back with another question. We're just using it like a chat. And that's not what email was really meant to be. So I would start to space out my responses. And I, I knew I had 24 hours. So they write me a quick email. And then I would wait 24 hours to respond to them because it wasn't urgent. And few things are urgent. And you'll really know when something is urgent and you can respond immediately with a phone call. But th these questions were not urgent. So I could wait 24 hours. So these are ways that you can hold boundaries. Another extreme situation that you definitely want to hold a boundary as an educator is if the parent is becoming irate or irrational or raising their voice or using offensive language with you. That is, I hope, very rare. But um, if you are an educator listening to this and you don't work at a school where you feel like you would be supported in that kind of situation, then you need to have a hard conversation about that with your administration. That if there is a parent that you are uncomfortable meeting with, that you have the right to request that another person's in the room with you, that could be a school counselor, administrator, learning support coordinator, another colleague, a department chair, somebody. Um, and you also have the right to end a conversation if it's going off the rails. And I've had to do that before, and it's very rare, but I hope that everyone listening to this feels like they have the right to do so. So please take, check out the book and read the, the section that we have on boundaries and how you can keep your uh, sanity as a teacher and that you're not checking email in the night because that's definitely not necessary. So check out that part so that you can feel a little bit better about your partnerships and keeping it professional. I'm really glad that you talk about this, Crystal, because I know that when I was a new teacher in particular, I felt this really bizarre, like it was my professional responsibility to over-communicate almost. Um, I think the fear was placed in me by my administrators at that time, like what expectations were. And because I didn't really have any like nobody specifically sat down with me and said, this is what appropriate contact looks like. It was just an expectation that I did it. Um, and at that time, when I first started teaching, I was I was working with kids who have had trouble in their um, learning experiences up till that point. Um, so when you have a room full of kids whose family lives are complicated as they are complicated as well, it, it makes those conversations even more wrought with, you know, like what feels like this need. And at the same time, also the fear, because like that situation you just described where you've had parents, you know, you know, kind of yell at you or do things like that. I would say in my early years as a teacher, that was not uncommon at all with the population I was working with. As a matter of fact, one parent-teacher conference, I had more than one parent show up um, drunk. So like there, there are things that you deal with and I'm sure somebody could write a whole book on all the crazy stuff that happens um, that you'd never expect as an educator, but actually does happen and has happened. Does the book like address any of these kind of like really crazy outlandish things that kind of happen? And do you have a tip for those quick exits that you talk about, like yeah. aside from just walking away? I'm sorry that was your experience early on. That sounds very tough. And um, yes, so I have small quotes um, that, are, that are throughout the chapters 
They are plucked in there throughout so you can read from other educators. I, I, I asked across, um, most of the responses are from the United States. I asked across the United States to please share some of your most outlandish uh, parent interactions. And I've got a few that are uh, sprinkled out throughout the book. Um, but I don't want to scare anyone away, right? Because I hope that those are more rare than common. Um, that's my hope. And if that's not the situation, then I think that we might, might have a larger conversation as a school if the, if the parents are coming to school intoxicated or coming irate or obnoxious in some way. That's that's a really big issue, and that's not a that's not a great environment to work in, and it's not a healthy environment for teachers to feel stable that they can teach a class and and feel happy that they have support at home. And I know that there are many types of different kinds of homes out there, and I hope that majority of them for you are positive and supportive. I I, I from my experience. And from my colleagues' experience that I've interviewed, it seems to be about 90-10. Um, 90% of the parents will be pretty supportive. I mean, of course, it's not going to be always rainbows and sunshine, but pretty supportive. And then the other 10% might might be the, the population that you're spending 90% of your time on because they're the most difficult 10%. So there's a whole chapter on that 10%. And an exit strategy is one I mentioned already, have someone in the room with you. You're going to feel more confident and the parent is going to feel less likely that they can intimidate you if there is another adult in the room. And um, another tip that I have is to place yourself between the door and the parent so that it's not awkward that you're walking around the parent to leave the room. That if you do need to make a quick exit because they are raising their voice at you or using inappropriate language with you, you can say, I've already asked you to not talk to me like that. I am ending the meeting and I'm walking out now. And literally get up and walk out of the door and leave the parent in there and send an administrator or security card back into the room to pick up the pieces. But you as an educator can go ahead and leave that situation. And if you don't feel that way, please talk to your building principal or an administrator at your school. Wow. Thanks so much, Crystal, for all these amazing tips. And for those of you listening right now, you should, you know, where where can folks get copies of When Calling Parents Isn't Your Calling, Crystal? Thank you for asking that. It is available on Amazon. There will also be a link to the book in the show notes that you could check out a link. I also have a website, www.crystalfromert.com. And you can find a link to the book there. And you can also find a link to all of the um, other articles that I've written and have published mostly through Edutopia. So please check those out as well. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for learning with us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you'd like any additional information from the show, check out the show notes. Learn more about Mastery Portfolio and how we support schools at masteryportfolio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mastery for All and on LinkedIn on the Mastery Portfolio page. And we'd love your feedback. Please write a review on your favorite podcasting app.